0: today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Indy Johar. And Indy has been a longstanding personal friend. He's been a a friend of the show. We're recording this about a week and a half almost into the new year. And what has become a, a now longstanding tradition on The Deep Dive is that the first episode of the new year that I release is a conversation between myself and Indy. So those of you who are longtime listeners of the show, this is gonna be your fourth time having an opportunity to hear Indy and I go back and forth. And this is gonna be the third time that he has kicked off a new season of the Deep Dive. We're going into our fourth year doing the show. This will be the 135th episode of the show. And I I couldn't think of of a better conversation partner to spend time with than Indy. He's someone who I've, I've long loved working with and talking to. And one of the highlights of my past year, 2022, was that we had an opportunity to be in person with one another at an event in Texas. And I think that that was the first time in, I'm going to say, maybe seven to eight years that we had been in the same place at the same time in person. So, in person meeting in 2022 to a kickoff conversation in 2023, I want to welcome Indy to the deep dive again. How are you, my friend? I'm very well, and I'm absolutely delighted and honored to be here, Philip. Uh, it's a real pleasure to kick these conversations off,
1: and I, I'm really interested in what we're going to discuss and how we're going to think about 23 together. So,
0: I'm uh, delighted to be here, and uh, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it will be, and I'll and I'll be honest. I don't know where we're gonna go either in this conversation, right? That's the that's the beauty of it. Typically, when I prepare to have a conversation with someone, I read tons of their stuff. I you know do all this prep, right? And then I have all these questions and blah blah blah. But I think the the beauty of our conversations is that it has an opportunity to be somewhat freewheeling because we're grounded so much in similar interest and values that intersect that we can have a, a a conversation that needs less scripting than maybe other types of conversations. And I have to say that our conversations have typically been among the most listened to conversations in the history of the show and people refer to them so often. I've, I've surfaced so many relationships from people who are like, I found this conversation with this guy, Andy Johar, and oh my God, it's like, boom. And then it it leads to all this all this other stuff. So I, I feel like this conversation will be no different from those other conversations. And I want to start with is, you know, we're at the cusp of a of a new year. And when that happens, and I'm I'm working on a piece about this, is that we spend a lot of time looking forward, you know, trying to predict what's going to happen. And, you know, as as the futurists quote unquote will say, they're looking for signals. And I'm I'm writing a piece, it's about halfway done right now, so it will likely be published before this conversation is released, but I'm thinking more about gaps than I am thinking about signals. And what I mean by that is I feel that they are real structural gaps in the way we think about knowledge, network knowledge, the way we think about the collective social values of a society, of of, of building a, a different type of society, So I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about, you know, what gaps do you see in how we're thinking about surfacing viable futures? Yeah, it's it's such an interesting question. And it's so
1: so interesting at multiple levels. I think for me, what's becoming clearer is that there are deep structural gaps in how we're looking at the future. And there are multiple versions of this. So one is... It's almost certainly clear the challenge that we face is at a planetary scale. So climate change is not actually, is very similar to nuclear mass destruction. It operates at a planetary scale, and once you kick it off, actually it requires a different theory or piece of peace and disarmament. So I think whether you look at biodiversity losses, climate change impacts, material economies, all these things are now operating into a global multipolar trap problem a planetary scale problem. Planet. And yet our solution spaces are still residually held in competitive nation-state theories of transition. So the gap between the nation-state and the reality of us existing on a planet with massive entanglement is a systemic gap in our our conversation. So the reality is, even if the US and Europe make the transition, and Nigeria, Ghana, China, pick any of them, India don't make the transition, we're all dead together. We're all dead together. This is a mutually assured destruction pathway, and so we haven't yet reconciled that reality. So the natural problem domains have become planetary, and yet our solution spaces are national territory in competitive theories. And I think this is one gap. Second gap, at a much more structural level, is a gap of what I would say is how we see ourselves. We still see ourselves in theories of objecthood. And divisibility and, and boundaries, as opposed to seeing ourselves in entanglements, in relationship, in flows. So we are the of flows of material conscious information systems here and not the a flow of this thing. So how we see the world is still in an old world, which means it's pre-configuring all of our theory of orchestration into it. How we see the world also means that, for example, how we see that if we see humans as objects, we see ourselves divisible from the planet. We see ourselves as divisible from the world around us, the ecosystem around us. And that's not materially, scientifically true. We are fully entangled at a, a bio, material, energy level. So uh, there's a gap in our conception of self, there's a gap in our conception of the planetary. And then there is a gap in our conception of how we orchestrate in the world, which is, I think, you know, and some brilliant writing have been talking about this as well, which is our theory of how we relate to the world to the ownership. Ownership is a theory of organizing. So we, we've now deemed it nearly as at least to say, that we own other people, um, although effectively we've created the construct of ownership into, into human sort of, we still hold on to them. In fact, modern day slavery exists in quite a large way. And Monday indirectly, they just aesthetically a us society. I think there's a second part of the problem, which is actually how we own the world around us, how we own nature, how we own land. These things are old world views and recognizing that there is a single point of optimization of a piece of land. Who has the right to destroy soil which takes thousands of years to make? Who has the right to destroy a butterfly which takes a billion years with a revolution to evolve? I think the theory of how we relate to the world, how we see ourselves, and how we see the planet, I think oh. these are fundamental gaps that are actually influencing our capability to be able to make the transition. And those are just three, I could name others, but I think there are a few structural ones on the table.
0: Absolutely. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I'm nodding along because there's, there's a few things in the few notes that I did scribble that you, you've already managed to, to touch on. I want to take point number two first, because it it directly relates to one of one of my little notes here that I, that I scrambled here, where when you talk about entanglements, it's a far different, just even just visually when you hear the word entanglement. It's a far different type of um, visual representation of a relationship than our, when we typically look at relationships which tend to be more hierarchical, whether you're thinking about organizational charts or the structure of a government or institution, they tend to all follow these linear lines that are very clear, right? This person reports to this person and tracks this thing and whatever. Entanglement implies a different sort of, of working relationship and visual relationship. And I'm curious how you think about entanglements in your work. Because one of the things that has that I've been thinking about a lot is conflict resolution. That when you are getting into work that is looking to focus on things that are emerging, people are walking into it with um, different needs and wants. There's issues of, of power exchanges, all this stuff that is part of the entanglement, but I, I feel like if I knew or were better armed with basic tools of conflict resolution, <laughs> I could probably get through some of those challenges that I feel maybe are a, a little bit more in the spaces that we inhabit, meaning I'll, what I'll call just broadly progressive spaces or more forward-thinking spaces, um, just so I stay away from um, political affiliations, because we're, we're in different places where the politics mean slightly different things. So I'm curious what you think about those entanglements and community and all of that messiness, which is, in, which is vital for the emergence, but can also impede the emergence at the same, at the same time. Absolutely. And I think that, so. there's so many good points in that. So I think
1: one of the things, like, I think this is where I think we have to recognize that we are we are operating in a traumatized landscape and we're operating in a contextual landscape, hyper-contextual. Language is not universal like, you know, chat GPT would like to make us believe that every word has a singular meaning and a singular comprehension. Language is contextual to your experiences, to your knowledge and your situations. And increasingly, we become hyper-contextualized. And I think one of the big questions is how do we create the, the, the safe... I hate the term safe space. space Who has the right to go. How do you create the kind of the landscape to recognize that we've all come with traumas and pains? How do we then create the space of empathy to be able to deeply listen to each other? And then, how do we recognize that actually, what are the pathways of mutual benefit and mutual benefits in this situation? And that means that I operate through a theory of care which is actually operating for a much larger theory about value than a theory of optimizing myself. So I can optimize myself. This is our transaction economics is generated through ideas of self-optimization, but that's a short-term optimization. It's a short-term optimization of the request of the system around you and the system around us all, which is what we been do. So how do we operate in new theories of care, which I think is really fundamental to actually operating in complexity and in entanglements? And that care requires us to be able to relate to actually recognizing that actually there are systems behind you. If I'm talking to you, it's not just talking to you, but the system behind you. And how do I do not unintended harm in situations like those? So I think there's a really interesting conversation. And the other part of this conversation, which I think is really important, is people try to bypass this problem by talking about a community, a bounded idea. And they'll say, who is the problem space that's bound the system? And I think actually this is part of the problem that I think what we have to talk about is less community to be in communal, to, to be in movement, to be in a, in a relationship, in a behavioural model with the world rather than to be in an object model. And that means we have to bring a different type of being to the world and a becoming to the world, which is actually how we are transforming ourselves consistently. into that landscape. So I, think, I would say to be in community with the world is more important than to be in communities. And that requires a different type of behaviour of ourselves. And I think this also sits at a macroeconomic or a macro landscape, which is that I would say, and this is a kind of interesting provocation to our friends that are listening, that we're probably in a 40-year journey where our biomaterial energy demographic landscape will be constrained. It will be reduced. We will have scarcity in our energy, material, bio-landscapes. And in 40 years, if we as a species can survive that 40 years, and thrive and build the developmental pathways of going from competitive game theory logics and net zero-sum gain, but we don't destroy ourselves, which is what we our pathway to do. We can then enter a new generation of infinity, which is actually new energy, new development, new material economic, economic, pump, which will be near and further again. And we're going through this period of operating into scarcity, and in that scarcity, we have to find new abundances, which will be actually critical to this theory. So how do we create the landscape of new abundances, which is the abundance of care, the abundance of, of collective intelligence, the abundance of craft, that move whole new types of value propositions in this model? As we move away from a, a scarce biomaterial energy landscape into a new infinite landscape, this, the first step of that infinitive is actually the intangibles. And the second step is accessing a whole new quality of energy material in, in 17,000 years, so I think this foundation 40 years that we've got is a is almost the pathway, like a it's to deal with the Fermi paradox. So I think civilizations, if, if they're if you're able in, in, as a civilization to be able to move through this competitive landscape, and you're able to move this competitive nation nation state landscape to a planetary collaborative landscape, at that moment in time, you will have um, we will have a pathway for a new Uh, our planetary future. And I think we're working through that So for me, it's all these uh, dimensions come together to open that
0: up. I love when you talked about being in community with the world, because it it sounds like a a very nuanced point in a way, right? Community is a word that we're all very familiar with. And it's a word in, again, the, the kind of spaces that we live in, there's a lot of emphasis on building community and being in community with one another. And that community has almost become the counter in the way it's, it's been framed to um, corporate and other types of relationships and getting back to community is seen as the North star. But what you're offering with this idea and provocation of being in community with the world it sounds very similar, but it is actually, I think, quite different in its, in its framing. And I want to connect that idea to this other concept of, of freedom, which is something that comes up a lot, right? And how do we reconcile being in community with the world with these notions of freedom when freedom looks very differently differently? to a lot of people. Oh, the way some people might think about freedom is their ability to, for example, extract and exploit. You know, Others view freedom in a, in a different context. So I want to give you an opportunity to maybe connect those two ideas because I feel like freedom is at the center of a lot of this. Uh,
1: you've hit the nail on the head. So
0: I think our notion of freedom is
1: so deeply underdeveloped. Um, Not at a philosophical level, some brilliant writers have developed it fantastically, but at a kind of societal level. Freedom as a theory has, I think, become as a reactionary response to the constraints of the system. So it's the freedom from the world that we're constantly it, the freedom from the tyranny of employment, the freedom from the industrial complex, the freedom from taxes. These are all freedoms from which are actually have become the underlying theory. It's the, it's the freedom to create the free space of getting, escaping the tyranny of the system that's around us, as opposed to the freedom to care, the freedom to be developed, to be able to actually be in the people around us. So what we have created is an impoverished space of freedom, which is actually just a reactionary freedom, as opposed to a deep developmental freedom, which is, I think, where we need to go. And I think we have to reappropriate language like freedom because we have to create the content and, and the capabilities for us to genuinely be free, to build a society of deep deep conceptual, but intellectual and actional and embodied freedom. But that freedom has to be built through a thesis of care and a thesis of relationship in the game. And that I think is a different, and that means that it's the freedom to care that we were looking for rather than freedom from the tyranny of the system. And we've created institutions and environments which are all about generating systemic trauma. So, for example, our, our economic theory is all about instrumentalizing humanity. You know, you do not get uh, welfare because actually you need to be getting a job, you need to be doing a work. It's all about instrumentalizing humans into the work economy, as opposed to actually creating the freedoms for, for humans to generate new theories of value. So we've treated humans like bad robots in a productive system, which is reallocated, as opposed to creating the freedom to create the next economy and the new capabilities of society, to create the new theories of value in society. So this is a, a, a humanity which is subservient to the economy. This is a, a, a humanity which is creating and manifesting the economy and society. And that is a different type of freedom. And we have to reappropriate that language of freedom. In community with the world, because actually recognising our entanglement and being conscious of our entanglement is a critical pathway in holding that freedom with care, with grace and with craft into the world. And that requires a new form of capability. So you're absolutely right. I think freedom is a word that we have to reappropriate and we have to build the genuine capacity for societies to be free, but not be afraid
0: of the tyranny for that freedom, the agency for everyone
1: to be free with care in that
0: process. In you know mentioning appropriation appropriation reappropriation freedom is is one of those concepts you know clearly it's an it's a notion that is weaponized by the right and conservatives and imagination is is one of those words i would offer also needs to be reappropriated in in the sense that you know i, I spent a lot of time over this course of the course of last year, and I, I kicked off my year writing a, a piece where I talked about imagination capture. This notion that even when we when we think we popular, we think we are stretching the boundaries of our of our thoughts and our ideas, we're still so l- captured by the idea of the market is is one of those places that. I feel captures our imagination. You know, if there's no, there's no outcome that can be measured by a out, by a market transaction, then the idea is not worth pursuing. You know, we are captured by technology. You, you know, you mentioned something like chat GPT. You know, this is considered by so-called serious people to be a true leap forward and in, in innovation, you know, and and I look at that and I'm like, this sucks. Right, for lack of like, for lack of like a deep inquiry into it, I'm like, this is not what we should be doing with our time, right? Like, I think Douglas Rushkoff wrote a a piece about Chat GPT recently, and he put it very eloquently. I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase him because because it's not in front of me, but he he calls it like, you know, it's it's writing and it's it's work that is only focused on being average. Right, like we're we're now creating things where average and passable is considered steps forward, right? So I want to. That's a, a long preamble to say, what are wh- how are you thinking about imagination and breaking out of what I call this imagination capture of technology and the market and transactions and all of all of those things. I I think it's a very powerful question, and I think there's there's so many different aspects of this.
1: One, I think the language is so inadequate. You know, the, the reality is we don't really operate in markets. <laughs> we, yet we use the language of markets. We operate in network theory. Uh, we operate in power laws. We operate in uh, new monopolistic structural positions um, because that's where we create value. We don't create value through the theory of markets very much, so markets. And yet we use the defensibility of markets in, in many ways. So there is a really interesting question about When is a market really a market? So, what is our language? And I think we're missing the right language for describing our economic organization. Our economic organization hardly is structured on market theory. The arbitrage of asymmetries are usually on the table. So, I think there's a really interesting question about the taxonomy of the language. Like, our theory of economics is largely a theory of economics on dead things, It's it's a theory of commodities rather than a theory of economic agencies or agents. Uh, um, and we see the world through, it, through through the life of dead things as opposed to the, the value of life in itself. So there's some really interesting tax, taxonomy questions at the center of this. And I think then, there's a, then there is a really interesting... So I think language is a pathway for shifting our imaginations as well. So opening up these discrepancies with language is really critical because it gives us the freedom to reimagine what, what is the economics of life what is the economics of a butterfly? Right? What is the economics of a whale? What does it really mean when we start to think about these things through a living system as opposed to a dead system perspective and a commoditized perspective? Then the imagination conversation, I think, really starts to begin. Because I think one of the biggest challenges that we face is that we are our economic theory is constructed on actually, I would say, the instrumentalization of humanity, our ability to instrumentalize humanity to do the allocated work. And I think one of the biggest transitions we're facing is a shift from that industrial theory of working for reallocation of what is the work. So an employment contract defines the work if something else executes according to that contract and is able to operate in that landscape to actually finding a different way of organizing which actually supports us to work um, in a landscape of imagination which is actually based on generosity and other frameworks. So let me give you an example. We pay people for the work they do, rather than create the conditions for them to do the work they can do. So we're always predefining the relationship. So how do we start to build a new human economy which isn't based on extensive instrumentalisation, but creating the context and the intrinsic capacities of development and imagination and making in a different way? And that requires a completely different idea of how we structure our organisations and structure our capabilities in radical format. Because all of our organisations are still constructed largely on military theory. They're largely constructed on command and control models. All of our instruments like employment laws and all this, stuff, are extensions of slavery, and extensions of command and control systems. So I think in order to build the imaginative capacity, we have to create the deep institutional environment for transition, We have to create not only the deep institutional environment, we have to create the environment for actually intrinsic uh, development as opposed to extrinsic development. We have to create the context, which isn't about uh, driving economic instrumentalization, but the kind of new theories of freedom. We have to create the psychological presence of being to be able to actually manifest and be embodied in our relationship in the moment and how we exist. And this is a new human economy, which has to sit in a new way off a new machine economy. And that new relationship between a new machine and human economy, and that machine economy sitting off a new ecological economy, is also a critical pathway. So a new human-machine ecological system and a new relationship is required across all these activities to, have to manifest that. And I think that is a big, critical opportunity, and, but it requires us to reimagine ourselves at every level, as you're right to so. say.
0: And I, I love again. This has happened now for this at least the second time in this conversation. Where I, I have one of my little prompts is ecology and economy. And in the, in your closing parts of that statement, ec- ecology and this idea of a uh, of a. Uh, when I hear ecology, I think of a, a deeper, connected, entangled relationship. To use your word of entanglement, and it's often framed. As if we are making a choice between one and the other, we can either. And it's, and I feel like it's been that way since I was a kid, right? Some of my earliest impressions of, let's call it, environmental movements was, you know, here in the in the United States, um, loggers in the Pacific Northwest um, going up against people who wanted to protect some kind of spotted owl, right? And I remember being, you know, eight or nine years old, and it was and it was framed in the of One versus the other, you know you can either have paper and lumbers lumberjacks can have jobs, you know or we can have these owls, right so what's it going to be people? do you want people having jobs and being employed and having a livelihood, or do you want some some bird that you may or may not have have cared about right and I'm simplifying the conversation, but it wasn't far from that right and it, and it left indelible impression on me because it seemed as if we were always having to make a choice between one or the other and there were conflicting messages i remember as a kid because it was also at a time when i think the 60s and 70s in, in the united states was a time of like great litter and it was just people just threw shit everywhere right and then there were a lot of um public campaigns around cleaning up your community not littering you know most famously there's the indigenous native american man traversing through the ruined landscape and then he turns to the camera with the one tear coming down his face at at what we have ruined right and and this was you know famous you know like these ads are are like incredibly impactful in an, in an american landscape to the point they're they're taught in courses all around business schools and, and likewise. So I'm, I'm saying a lot to say that there's these mixed messages and then there's also a general frame of one or the other. And it sounds like what you're offering is a rejection of one versus the other and an invitation to something other than that. So I want to give you a chance to go a little deeper there.
1: No, I agree. I mean, I, I think this is where the kind of division – kind of seeing, say, whether it's freedom and community as being things which are separate, I think is part of the problem, you know, and this is where the entanglement of freedom actually as coexistence has become critical pathways. And the freedom is not a freedom to escape the entanglement, the freedom to operate in care with the entanglement, recognizing you, recognizing actually the kind of the capacity and the agency of the individual in different formats or the kind of recognizing, operate in different development pathways as well. So I think you're absolutely right. And I think this, but these require us to go deep into the system to find new pathways. So say our societies, we been built on theories of property rights. They've been built on the theory of property rights as a mechanism of freedom, as a mechanism that gives us the agencies of freedom or the kind of illusions of freedom certainly. Yet they do not recognize that actually in the point of Conversion of a piece of land to my soul needs and the destruction of the water, the carbon sequestration, the, uh, the soil capacity, the, the ecological capacity, but I'm in a pathway of mutually assured destruction. So I'm self optimizing for myself, but I'm actually de optimizing for all of us, including myself in the long term. So I think what we've been given is these false dichotomies between the individual and us being in communion or community with the world. To we've seen these as dichotomies, No, they are not. They are pathways of new pathways of being, which are built off our individuality. I'm not denying the agency of the individual, but I'm saying in that individuality, let's recognise our interdependence. In that individuality, let's operate in a of pair, recognising that we are mutually, we're in a pathway either of mutually assured destruction or mutually assured development. And those are integral pathways. We're non divisibly aligned into those pathways. And that, that became more and more apparent for many people in COVID when it became very clear that certainly in Europe, there was not one paracetamol being made. Or in New Zealand, well, actually, you could go and isolate yourself in New Zealand if you were a billionaire. But actually, there was no mask, there was no industrial capacity, you didn't have most pharmaceuticals weren't being done. The idea that New Zealand could alive with its own individuality was not viable. And the recognition of our entanglement is so critical that I think one of the, you know, we're starting to see in Europe, there's a whole conversation of auto- autonomous strategies. How does Europe become autonomous? And these are illusions because actually the microchip in these machines that we're operating is reliant on global supply chains, whether it's the Congo or whether it's actually Taiwan or whether it's neon gas from Ukraine. These are entangled flows of materiality that create the microchip and it's taken 70 billion humans to get to the moment where we've constructed a microchip. So it's not only entanglement in space, it's an entanglement in time. And our reality is we are now entangled. Yet our institutional and our conceptual and our cultural logics haven't yet us. We're apes living in a hyper-entangled landscape which aren't able to actually recognise we're operating an outlook. Now I say that, but I also say it in a different way, which is that I think, I fundamentally believe that students have the capacity we are not limited by our past. Actually, what makes us brilliant and interesting is our capacity for evolution, our capacity, our rules are not there to limit us, our rules are there to enable us. Our, how do you build the capacity to ennoble us and actually help us develop in this way? So too much of our thinking of humanity is based on some idea of the primordial, primordial human being, which is this, you know, everyone talks about the limits of being human because we're this kind of, you know, uh, biological fact. But actually, what's more interesting is that I think we, as humans, we've been able to evolve and create all these other things. So, how do we look at the foundational pathways of development rather than the limits of humanity? I think we've been able to, uh, you know, we are able to create societies where actually it is not a, uh, it is not deemed a tyranny to each other. It's not deemed a beneficial act. Trust is deemed a beneficial act. So, how do you create the conditions? for a new positive relationship rather than just imagining that human love is a fundamental, raw instrument, which we are not. We are co-developed with the environment to create new capacities, and I think that's really important, how we reimagine our future in radical formats.
0: It's interesting that you mentioned that idea of the past and the, the narratives and the stories that we tell each other about are, are coming into existence. And I'm curious why that story that sort of primal, you know, survival of the fittest. You hear people talk about our, you know, our lizard brain, the brain that is like pu- pushing us into these sort of instinctive reactions, which are usually being used to explain violence, right? Like they're usually being used to justify or back into a story that is a violent story. So human beings have always had this instinct, this sort of lizard primal brain. We've tried to push it down, but whenever we don't push it down, you have Putin, right? Or, or, some, or something like that, right? Or whoever you want to interject into that. Um, exactly. Into that convo. Why is that so seductive when it's so wrong? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's so seductive because it
1: justifies evil, hmm. right? And it gives it evil, a, and I'm going to use the word evil, which I think is a very emotive word, but I think it justifies evil through a thesis of it being natural law. This is just a natural way of being, but actually it's not the natural way of being. And I'm not interested in the lizard brain because actually we didn't just get a lizard brain. We've evolved many, many of human capability that allow for you and I to talk. And I'm more interested in actually the capabilities of humans as we've in the most generative capabilities that we have than actually returning to a foundational theory of the lizard brain as somehow some essential truth, which is much more or less, much less interesting than the fact that everything that we've created outside outside that lizard brain. And it's so interesting, and I think you're absolutely right to nail this here so much of the conversation is rooted in justifying all the things that are terrible, <laughs> I have argue, in the theory, well, this is just a lizard brain. So, and most of our technology is actually being wired into augmenting that in most social and emotional response. And I think this is one of the other things, our economic theory, our technological theory, they're all rooted in a lower base lizard-based response, and they've been augmenting and accelerating our lizard-based run. So we built an aggressive lizard-based economy in society, rather than actually the wider functionalities of human beings, which we know we have. Yeah, all these things are not, not that, but they're natural. They're natural. They, they're manifest in our society all the time. So I think what's really interesting is that we've probably built a socio-technology. I would call a techno-machine landscape for accelerating our lizard-day economy and transactions, rather than the full human development landscape around that. So we haven't built the social technological landscape. Our economic homo-economists is an idea of a greedy human, which is self-optimizing himself. And that's not all of humanity. It's not all of humans. It's not all of every human. That's all their existence. Where our socio-economic models are so reductive, and even if they get advanced, they get into mimesis as opposed to self-optimization. So they're actually such lower brain order functions that our social institutions are replicating very low-scale human institutional capabilities. And I think this is something we have to break out, we have to reimagine our institutions for something beyond our capability, which has all existed, by the way. This is the other thing. This, our techno-machine landscapes are operating in a very small capacity of human thinking and interaction and accelerating it, whereas all the wider capabilities are being largely discarded largely ignored, and largely neglected at our institutional landscapes. And that reflects in our society how we behave with each other. So there there is a really interesting question, and it may be just as simple as it is simple to model those things, and our bureaucratic landscape was able to cope with the simplicity of modelling simple behaviours and accelerated and assumed on those behaviours. And what we haven't built is the institutional capacity to actually involve Mm -hmm. the wider human 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 modality into that system. And that requires us to reimagine ourselves as humans, but also the institutional economy around that.
0: And I want to use that point to pick up on a little bit of where we started when we were talking about entanglements. And you mentioned, you know, they are individual traumas, they're collective trauma, and we're walking into these entanglements carrying all of these things. At the same time, I think we will both agree that we need to model, as you said, model care. You know, I've, I've long said we're in a crisis of, of care. And maybe this is an individual reflection of, of my own, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on it, that when you, when you are in these states where you're, everyone's dealing with what they're dealing with, right? And we're thinking about doing work collectively, we're thinking about care, it's hard to build in care when you as an individual or you as a as a group are hurt right and so i'm curious about how do we untangle some of that because i I'm, again i'm i'm speaking as an individual i i like to think that oh i'm a good person but sometimes there's so much anger that i i look at at those who i would feel are are diametrically opposed to my existence, which is which is how I think about it. I look at some forces are organized where their worldview is to eliminate people like myself, meaning darker people, people non-white, whatever you want to call it. But I think they look at us as something to be tolerated and exploited, but by and large to be eliminated. <laughs> you know, but not eliminated at a point where it does it, where it makes their life hard but any excess you know to think about you know any market market talk you know any excess of black and brown people that makes is no longer making their lives comfortable got to go right and it's hard <laughs> to muster care and love when you when you feel like you're at war right and the reason why I'm I'm bringing this all up is because I don't like these analogies right I don't want military-industrial analogies. I don't want to talk about storming a beach or taking a hill. When you talk about language, I want to use the language of love and care and and building, being a part of and building systems that are beneficial to all of us, while at the same time, as a human, having anger. (laughs) So I'm asking about how do we talk about that honestly and then also work past it, because I think it's part of telling a new story and not letting the trauma get in the way of the work, if that makes sense.
1: No, I I, um, I mean, this is such a difficult question at so many different levels. Because it's so many different levels, I think the challenge is that many of the people that are at war with us, let's put it that way, are actually in trauma themselves and are actually pawns in the game of a wider system. And they are being weaponized in order to create, actually, the politics of power and the politics of capital preservation in different ways. So I think there's a really difficult question here of the kind of the complexity of the war that's on the table. And unfortunately, I'm using that, that thing I'm talking about. And I think that then, then there is a sort of conversation about how we... Def- I currently think you know, my biggest worry is that, that we're rapidly... We're rapidly entering an age where effectively, unless we can actually do the peace and reconciliation that's required, we won't be able to build the collective pathways and the kind of transition pathways for us as society, both at a national and planetary scale. So there is a really hard question here that we have to start to actually create this landscape for empathy and the landscape for care. and We have to create that as a context in order for people to actually move beyond it. But you're right. People that have been traumatized for years, generations, actually, it's another burden to say, oh, we'd like you to care more, please, because actually this is another burden they are going to put on the table. Yet at the same time, I think we are in a situation where we're going to have to, as people that have been on the other side of that, we are going to have to find pathways to care. I just don't see another way. Because my worry is that in our act of being in our act of going in our act of going to war with those that want that that don't want us to exist, actually we're fulfilling the aims of the people that really are looking to divide and conquer. I think and the division and conquering I think is what the table. I, I, I worry about that that I think we're becoming all being instrumentalized, not recognising our neutrality, not recognising our divisions, which are illusionary, in order to be able to fulfill a construction of power that much people are. I think that's the real problem on the table. And that is going to require us to step forward. And, and I think it's going to require people from both sides to step forward to the new theory of care beyond that. And I don't have a satisfactory answer for you Philip on this, but I, yeah. I worry about this quite a lot. I do worry that where does this emotional burden and where does this burden for transition fall? And what does that really mean? but I don't see a pathway. You know, if you go to war, we're in
0: mutually assured destruction. So somebody, whoever's wise, is going to accept it. Yeah, absolutely. And again, it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to talk about because one, you know, I'm a lover, not a fighter, right? Like I'm not interested in like fighting and, and all the rest of it, but I, I, I want to find better analogies, right? I want to find better stories, but I do think that I'm trying to raise an alarm without being alarming, because I do share the way you're thinking about it. Like, I, I think I look at the increasing way in which the rise of, of fascism is real, right? Like, these are not, you know, metaphorical sort of examples, right, where people are just throwing around words. Like, you. whether you see it here in the United States for years, right, you see it, in right, even as we're recording this, there's you know far right Bolsonaro supporters storming in Brazil. Right, they saw that model on January 6th a few weeks ago. There was a um, New York Times story, and I'm sure it was reported elsewhere in the world about a attempted sort of conspiracy in Germany. Right, where these um, alt right or right wing guys were conspiring with some former prince or something like it was. It read like something out of Babylon Berlin. And I think it's easy to look at these seemingly isolated examples and say, "Like, oh well, look, they they didn't actually do it, and look, it was a plot. We discovered it." But what worries me is that these sorts of ideas and the mechanisms behind them are so are more pervasive than we think. No, I, I agree with you totally. But I, I think the one thing I would say though
1: is that there is no pathway. This is the actual fundamental problem that we're facing. Mm-hmm. There is no right-wing, far-right-wing coup, coup pathway that we survive in. Mm-hmm. Right? So the reality is Bolsonaro can do what he wants for five years, 10 years, 20 years, but it basically means Brazil is dead along with the rest of the world. So I think that the, the end game has to be made visible here. There is no, this is a mutually assured destruction pathway. And I think we have to discount these theories at a systemic level. And I think this is the, one of the big challenges for me is that there is no competitive theory with which we survive as humanity mm-hmm. right now. And I think there's a simplicity and the clarity of that message that I think starts to change the, the landscape of politics and the landscape of possibility. Because I think we've created an illusion of localism. We've created an illusion that actually, we can somehow sustain Brazil can sustain itself, or America can sustain itself in its boundaries, or Germany can. Sustain. These are all illusions because we're so foundationally entangled. If Amazon by twenty fifty is gone, we're almost all certainly gone in the planet. In the planet, Amazon is not a Brazil. It's not a Brazilian product. It's a planetary product which Brazil happens to sort of um, host. Yeah, um, and, or steward and, um, in the best of steward. conditions. Right. Exactly. But it has to be seen as a planetary object as opposed to be a Brazilian object. And I think, I think that this is my fundamental proposition right now, more and more, is that there is no pathway, right? There is no pathway of territorial uh, optimization which gets us through. Mm-hmm. And I think I find that refreshing. I find it releasing. I find it releases me from saying, well, actually, there is a pathway, and there is really only a pathway of recognizing our planetary dependence and entanglement. And that's going to require us to recognize the new theory of how we are in community with the planet. And that is going to require us to organize differently. That's going to require us to reimagine ourselves differently. So I suppose I sit here with a kind of, with also a great hope on the other side of this, which is that I think there is no pathway in those coops. Those, and we're seeing these things play out because they're also the end of systems as well. So when people can go to such extreme lengths to try to actually, that's also something about a system that's now actually in transformation as well. And I think that transition is, requires us to be more radical in actually how we, how we engage this conversation, how we understand this conversation, and how we build the shared empathy of the institutions for this conversation.
0: And actually, that's going to be part of the journey. Absolutely. I, I want to start to get us out on this notion because you mentioned hope. And, you know, hope is, you know, we've, we've seen hope used to elect the president with Obama. That was a big part of his messaging. Um, you know, famously, Jesse Jackson here in American politics had keep hope alive. That's a, a shout of the 70s and 80s. Um, and I've increasingly started to think of and, and see hope not as something that's fuzzy and theoretical, but as something that is actually deeply actional actionable and should be seen as a call to action. We should be doing something. And I, I think, you know, you, you when you start to talk about planetary scales and Brazil as host and other examples of that, it, it makes me think about um those who are in, in abolitionist spaces and talking about um getting, you know, removing of borders, the arbitrariness of, of borders. And these seem like anathemas, right? But yet I feel like they're the fertile these ideas and others are the fertile grounds to where we we really have to start to call into question how this is all going to work. It brings us back to the beginning when you talk about the nation state. The nation state can only exist in a concept of of borders, physical and otherwise, separations when we're mo- when we're in a world that is increasingly less separable. So Having said all that and putting a nice bow on it as we kind of le- lean out of the conversation, this, this notion of hope, I wanna leave you with the floor to talk about how radical that idea really is in connection to the work that you're doing. So I love this, this idea of, I don't think hope is a, is a generic
1: word, but it's, it's an operation of, of living in the possible. The kind of generative possible of tomorrow. And as you rightly say, I agree with you that I think this is a foundational transition. It is not a transition at the level of kind of, you know, soft monetary optimization and economic theory and expanding our theory of kind of value from X to Y. This is a transition in how we imagine ourselves, this is a transition in how we imagine our relationship with theories like property which I think, again, as part of the abolitionist movement, they're challenging the theory of property as a fundamental thesis of how we organize in the world. And also expanding our theory of how we operate at the planetary scale, the idea of boundaries and the idea of how even the idea of if land has become self-owning, how do we live in it? So I, I think that we're transitioning from the idea of a public and private world to an entangled world where value is entangled, value is civic. And that is transforming everything around us, whether it's all the way from the you know, idea of a house and the materiality of the house, who owns the materials of the house, and how do you be- materials become uh, completely different? How do you own the uses of houses? How do you understand use rights of a house? How do you understand the land of the ecosystem to which uh, when that house sits? I think all these things are being unbundled and explored in different ways. and will need to be explored in different ways. I think that operates in the level of landscape who owns the tree canopy of a city, who owns the collective intelligence of a city, all the way. And I use the word ownership in a pejorative sense of, to be able to challenge this notion. And then at a at a meta state level. Like, how do we govern these planetary civics of whether it's the Amazon or whether it's a river system or whether it's actually a network of satellites around the planet? What is our governance of these new planetary civics? So at every level, I think we're starting to see a transformation. And then on the other side, this requires new types of institutions, new types of institutional logics which allow us to move away from these things to be seen as objects but networks of flows, to be these things to be seen from from a landscape level, aggregate function, being seen as new common goods, how do you finance them in the 21st century, all of that stuff comes to the table. So we've got a sort of a a material transformation of our real world economy, a conceptual transformation from things to entanglements, from knots, uh, from objects to uh, knots of flows, to the economy of life as opposed to the economy of dead things. And then we've got a transformation of all of our institutional objects beyond ownership And all the way through new forms of system agreements, multi-actor agreements around these sort of civic level projects. And I think that also sits in recognition of a wider frame, a 40-year transition, which looks at how do we deal with the bioenergy collaboratively? as we enter, after that 40 years, a new theory of abundance, which will be a radical abundance of available energy material sources on the, and hopefully a regenerative face. So we're going through this transition of a biomaterial energy scarcity to unlock a new infinite capacity of human creativity, craft, and care and that can then deal with a new creativity of uh, new infinity, infinite, infinite cognitive is of new energy sources, new material sources. So we're operating into those vast landscape transitions. And I think that, that is an invitation for us to be hopeful as we enter a sojourn, a journey, which will be transitionally difficult, but it's a transitional difficulty that allows us to develop, that allows us to develop a new form of capability to operate in a new theory of freedom and freedom of care as we enter in 40 years' time a new theory of abundance. And I think that is a positive, hopeful journey that we can be on, and it's actually the technological journey that we're all in. Now we just need to build institutional and human development pathways to accelerate and understand that.
0: Absolutely. I, I, this is a journey that I'm happy to be on when I'm when I'm locked in when I'm in step and locked in with like folks like yourself. You know, this is a, a perfect way for us to kind of go out on this segment of our 2023 conversation. But obviously we're gonna be in constant conversation as we has as we have been for the past decade plus of of knowing each other and 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 being in relationship with one another. We have a lot of work to do, but I'm excited to do it. As always, I want to thank you for your wisdom, for your work, for you taking the time to be on the show. I'm going to thank you in advance to the listeners who always rave about your appearances on the show. Excited to to have this be out in the in the world as we make these big transformational changes. And thank you so much for being on a deep dive with me, my friend. It's an
1: absolute pleasure and honor. And thank you for everything that you do and the amazing guests that we have on so I just want to say it's such a pleasure to see you all, all this is the, all the brilliant people that you bring on the
0: air. thank you so much. You're 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 leading that brilliant pack, my friend. So thanks again. Yeah, that. And we're gonna and we're gonna do this many more times in the future. We have 40 years. To to get this all done. So we'll be doing it. All right, my friend. Thank you so much for being on the show. Cheers. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you you can follow me on twitter via at phil to all my listeners wherever you are in the world i thank you see you on the other side